If you have your copy of God's Word, if you turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, we'll be taking our text from this morning. Romans chapter 8, and we'll only look at verse 1 today. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. And here the Bible says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reading of your word this morning. Help us, Father, as we try to preach. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we continue through our study of rooting through Romans, we're here starting chapter 8. And uh, it's this part number 21, if you're keeping up with the series. And I've titled the message from the text today, No Condemnation in Christ. And uh, this is going to be a very important message. And, you know, I originally I was trying to cover the first 11 verses of this chapter. And the more I kept reading and studying and praying about it, I realized there was simply no way I could get out of verse 1 and spend enough time on the next 10 verses. So uh, only this one verse today, Lord willing, is we're going to look at it. And uh, it is, is a large verse. It is uh, one of those key verses in the Bible that assures the Christian of our uh, not being condemned for our sins. Uh, It's one of those verses we can look at and cling on to and gives us great hope, uh, gives us encouragement. Uh, Those days when we feel like we've we've strayed from God or we've we've failed, we've faltered, uh, we've sinned, but we can go back and look at this text and realize that we still have salvation and that uh, there's no condemnation Uh, to those which are in Christ. And so suddenly Paul turns the page from what he's been dwelling on the first seven chapters. The first seven chapters were really turned with an inward focus on man. It showed the depravity of man, the man's sinful condition, how man needed to be saved, gave us the recipe for that, uh, showed us how man was no longer under the law, but how the law was good, and how the law uh, was a schoolmaster that brought us uh, to Christ. And... uh, all these wonderful things Paul talked about. Last time, last Sunday, we looked at chapter 7 and all those eyes that Paul was talking about. Remember, it's all about I, me, uh, what I've done, what I'm sinning, what I'm doing, what I... And so we counted up those times and it was, what, 37 times Paul referred to himself either as I or me. And that's just uh, remarkable how many times he was referring to himself. But here in chapter 8, the focus changes off of self and onto the Holy Spirit, onto Christ. And that's why he starts out the the chapter there with, Therefore, since I've said all this, all these things I've told you up to this point, is all based on this. Therefore, this is what Paul's saying. And so up until now, uh, the usage of the word spirit in the book of Romans has only been dealing with the essence of man's spirit. He's not been talking about the Holy Spirit. One time the Holy Spirit is made mention of in the first uh, seven chapters, and that was in chapter 5, verse 5, where he refers to the Holy Ghost. But the other times the word Spirit is used in the book of Romans up to chapter 8 is is talking about man, the essence of man, like Romans 1 and 4, the spirit of holiness. Uh, Romans 1, 9, my spirit in the gospel. Romans 2, 29, the heart in the spirit. Romans 7, 6, newness of spirit. So it's it's actually talking about the essence of man's spirit in those instances. But here in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, we suddenly notice a change 
in the usage of the word spirit. We are no longer seeing the, the, the uh, uh, dominance of a lowercase s on the word spirit. In fact, Paul suddenly starts using a capital S on the word spirit, meaning a person, a proper name, spirit. And that's what the spirit is. The spirit is a person, uh, part of the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Or as us Baptists like to say, the Holy Ghost. As the King James Bible calls him, the Holy Ghost. Uh, but here, this uh, capital S, the Spirit of God. And if I counted it correctly, uh, it is used 19 times in just in chapter 8 of Romans. 19 times a capital S Spirit. Romans 8 1, the first verse we read there, walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And the Spirit, of course, is referring to the Spirit of God. Uh, I believe the, the Greek translation is pneuma, meaning uh, breath or air, kind of like a pneumatic drill. It uses air and pneuma. Uh, but Romans 8 and 2, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 and 4, walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Romans 8 and 5, they that are after the spirit, then the things of the spirit. Romans 8 and 9, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And then the spirit of God dwell in you. And uh, the Spirit of Christ, just, just in one verse, he uses it three times. Romans 8 and 10, the Spirit is life. Romans 8 and 11, the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus. His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Romans 8 13, through the Spirit. Romans 8 14, led by the Spirit of God. Romans 8 15, the Spirit of adoption. Romans 8 16, the Spirit itself bears witness. Romans 8 23, the first fruits of the Spirit. Romans 8, 26, likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, the Spirit itself maketh intercession. Romans 8, 27, the mind of the Spirit. And so in all 19 cases right there, Paul is referring to the Holy Spirit. Now, twice he uses a lower case S, meaning, again, uh, the essence of man. Uh, he uses it only twice in this, uh, this text uh, here in chapter 8. But I think it's important, I gave you all those verses for a reason, it's important that we understand just how important the Spirit is to the Christian. I mean, without the Spirit, we're, we're dead. Without the Spirit, we don't have Christ living in us. Without the Spirit, we don't know the mind of Christ. We don't know how to behave ourselves. We don't know how to conduct ourselves as a child of God. And uh, In John uh, 4 and 24, the Bible says, God is a Spirit, using the capital S again, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So it's instrumental in our Christian walk and worship that we understand it's, it's all spirit-led. It's spiritual. This religion that we hold dear to is a spiritual religion. You know, there's a lot of religions out there, and there's a lot of different spirits, but those spirits are not the spirit of Christ or the spirit of God. They're not the Holy Spirit, but they're dark spirits. They're black spirits or demonic spirits. There's a lot of that going on, but we as Christians, the Holy Spirit of God. And of course, Romans, uh, uh, here in Romans chapter 8, the Bible says, Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So that's what marks a believer, a true believer, a Christian, has Christ, the Spirit of Christ in them. And that Spirit is the same Spirit. We talk about how the Holy Spirit indwells within us. That's the same Spirit of Christ. Because Jesus said he was going to go away. He's going to send another comforter, which is another name for the Holy Spirit. 
And that comforter is going to reveal things of Christ in us. And so I'm afraid we spend an awful lot of time emphasizing on physical things more than we do spiritual things. When it comes to religion, when it comes to church, when it comes to your Christian faith and life, it's a spiritual thing. And we need to emphasize those things, especially in the church setting. Too many churches are based on uh, uh, physical things, um, uh, fleshly things, carnal things, things that please people. And we're not here to please ourselves, we're here to please God. And the only way that we can please God is, just as he said, we must worship him in spirit and in truth. Not in flesh, not in carnality. And so we need to emphasize spiritual things. Now, I was speaking to my good friend, Brother Jonathan Tharp, pastor over at Outreach. I was speaking to him just recently uh, about how churches, when they choose deacons, and just give me, just bear with me for a minute. But we were talking about how a lot of deacons don't seem to have the spiritual qualification that the Bible talks about that they need. And uh, I made that mention. I said, I believe that most churches look for an able-bodied man instead of a spiritual man. And so they'll choose just whoever is willing. Any warm body will do, as long as they've not been married twice. You know, you're, you're in. You're, you're, you're a deacon. And so they don't look at the spiritual part of the man. They look at the physical part and say, will he fill this position? Will he do this? Is he willing to do this? And that's the biggest choosing now for churches because churches have so few helpers today anybody that's willing and able to help let's put them in uh, but we need to emphasize the spiritual condition of the man to do God's work now, I had a deacon one time uh, every time I called on him to do anything of spiritual matters such as a Bible study teaching a Sunday school class uh, filling in for me when I was out uh, just leading in prayer or whatever uh, he fell all to pieces and said, no, he's not comfortable doing that. So he wouldn't do anything that, uh, that needed to be done in spiritual matters. Now, if you ask him to help you do something physical, some kind of labor, oh yeah, he's all over that. But when it came to something that deals with the matters of God and spiritual matters, he was unwilling and unable to do those things. Well, needless to say, he did not last very long as a deacon. But the very first model of a deacon one of the major qualifications was that he must be a man filled with the Spirit. Uh, listen to these qualifications. Now, this is the very early model of a deacon. Uh, as the early church began and those apostles were so busy doing everything, they were having to wait on tables and keep up with the widows and orphans, and, and it took away from their prayer and study time, and it was really becoming a burden. And so they looked out upon them, uh, for some people. And so look at Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. It said, In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look you out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer to the ministry of the Word. Did you see that? All the qualifications of these very first early role of a deacon was that they must uh, be of honest report and full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. And so not a thing about them being liked by men 
or being popular or being wealthy or being strong or being willing and able. All that was said that they would be honest and full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Now, of course, we're given more a, a, a broader list of qualifications over in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but uh, we're not going to get into that today. That's not today's message. I just wanted to throw that in for you there and uh, to, to make you realize that the things of God, the things of the church, the things of religion, things of Christianity are all spiritually uh, are spiritual matters. And like the Bible said, the things of God are spiritually discerned. And if you're not a Christian, you can't discern that. So let's let's move on. Look look back at verse one again of Romans chapter eight, verse one. We'll look at that first part of it. The Bible says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Now I'm glad to know that there's no condemnation to those which are, as it said, in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? That means you've been saved. That means at some point in your life, you heard the gospel, and by faith, you believed in the gospel, you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you made him your savior. And by grace, he saved you. And so by faith in Christ, and by his grace, you were saved. And when you become saved, then you became in Christ, and Christ became in you. And so by faith, he's our savior. And now he lives in us, and we're in him. And because we are saved, at that very moment, you no longer can be condemned for your sins. Now, can you be brought up and chastened and things for your sins? Certainly. That's all through the Bible. If you're a child of God, you'll be chastened when you sin. He'll chasten you the same as, as you would a child. Uh, but uh, we're no longer held under condemnation. Now, you may wonder, what, what exactly does that mean? Well, what that means is, to be under condemnation means that you are being damned to hell. That's, that's exactly what that means. If you've not been saved, you are under condemnation. You've been condemned. And we know this because the Bible says that lost people are under condemnation. Romans 5 and 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation... Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. And so, when you see condemnation, that is for those that are lost. If you're lost, you're condemned. It came, you, it's naturally in you to be condemned, to go to hell because of the sin of Adam. It said it came upon all men because of the offense of one that this condemnation came. And the word condemnation means a sentence of damnation. Now, I'm not cussing this morning. You'll find the word damnation actually used 11 times in your King James Bible. Six of those times it's off the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one warning us about this eternal damnation. And the word damnation means a condemning judgment and separation and punishment. That's what damnation means. And so essentially that's exactly what condemnation means. And in shorter terms, it means you're being sent to hell to pay for your sins. That's what condemnation is. Now, the word condemnation itself is used 12 times throughout the King James Bible, and it is never a good thing. It's always associated with death. Always. And so Jesus says this in John 5 and 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, 
and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Do you see, see something similar here? Every time you see a, a, the, the condemnation of a sinner, you see the salvation through Christ and a justification that's been made. And it's always a difference from death to life. So condemnation is death and justification is life. Salvation and justification are two and the same. And so it brings you to life. And it's only through Christ Jesus. And I thank the Lord through Jesus, the Bible calls him the free gift of God. The free gift. Uh, we don't have to go to hell and pay for our sins because of what Christ did for us. We're no longer under condemnation. We are now justified. We have justification. And we are going through a sanctification. And one of these days we will have glorification. But not till we reach heaven. And so we are under a justification of life, as the Bible calls it. And as Jesus said, we pass from death unto life. You were born unto death and condemnation. condemnation. But when you were born again in Jesus Christ, you were then born unto life eternal. And I'll remember what we studied already here in Romans. Back in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, Paul said this. He said, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Here, listen, listen to this, verse 24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins, that are passed through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So here Paul's explaining here the justification of the believer is by faith alone and based upon the grace of God and it is not us, it's not us that, that the reason that we're justified, it's because of Jesus, because he's the justifier. He's the one that gives us justification because it's through him. His goodness, his righteousness has been imputed into the believer. And so uh, it's not us, it's all him. And so if you are a true believer in Christ, if you've been saved, you believe in the gospel, you cannot come under condemnation. It's impossible. And anyone that says that a Christian can fall out of Righteousness that can fall out of being saved and held under condemnation the same as they were before they were saved, what they're saying is that Christ's righteousness is not good enough. That Christ's blood is not powerful enough to keep someone saved. That Christ can be condemned. That is what someone says if they say a believer can fall out of salvation or can lose their salvation. You're saying that Christ is not good enough. That's exactly what you're saying. And that makes absolutely zero sense. 1 Peter 3 and 18, the Bible says, For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 6 and 8. 
Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, died no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through who? Jesus Christ our Lord. It's, it's so clear. I mean, if you just read God's word and take it for what it says, it's so clear. A, a believer cannot lose their salvation. They cannot come under condemnation any longer. And they are justified before God through Jesus Christ. Now, I know it sounds like I'm beating a dead horse here, but this is so important that you understand this. This is the very basis, the doctrinal foundation of our salvation. Without this, then we don't have salvation. Without this, we don't have hope to be able to go to heaven. Without this, we don't have hope to escape the, the flames of hell. And so it's so important. Now, look at our text again, back in our opening text, Romans 8 and 1. Let's look at those last 10 verses of Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. All right. Now, this little part of this verse causes so much trouble for so many people. Uh, almost every single commentary or study Bible that you go and look at, these smart men tried to make you believe that this, these 10 verses were not supposed to be in that verse. The ten, 10 words, not verses, 10 words. These 10 words are not supposed to be in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Some scribe took them from verse 4 and put them in verse 1 as well. Uh, they're not in the original manuscripts, they said. Now listen to what some of these commentaries and Bible studies say. Now, these are some of the most popular ones and some that I use. I use all these, actually, commentaries. Um, not that I take every word that they say for, for truth. And this, this is what I'm trying to prove to you. The Cambridge Study Bible, which is used by a lot of colleges. The Cambridge Study Bible, it says, It is probable that the words from who walk to after the Spirit are to be omitted here. Almost for certain, the last clause, but after the Spirit must be omitted. Very possibly they were inserted here by a copyist who conceived the previous statement too absolute to be trusted alone to the reader and so borrowed a quasi-note from Romans 8.4. That's what your Cambridge Study Bible says. The Pulpit Commentary, which is a very popular commentary for a lot of preachers. It says, The additional words of this verse in the Textus Receptus have but slight support having probably been supplied from Romans 8.4. They are out of place here. John MacArthur, his study Bible. This phrase is not found here in the earliest manuscripts, but only at the end of verse uh, Romans 8 and 4, perhaps indicating an inadvertent copyist insertion. See I Schofield, the Schofield study Bible, which I'm using right here on my podium, and I use it every, every time I preach. He says... The last ten words are interpolated. Now, what that word means is they've been inserted from a different text. So the last ten words have been interpolated. They've been inserted from a different text. They don't belong here. This one broke my heart when I read this one. J. Vernon McGee, Through the Bible. Listen, J. Vernon McGee, that Through the Bible study series, 
is my first set of commentaries my dad uh, my dad had, and that's what I started studying. I bought me a set, and I started studying through those, and it made so much sense. And he he can speak in common everyday man's language, helped me tremendously. But I was so disappointed in what he said. J. Vernon McGee said, "It does not really belong in this verse." Apparently, some scribe picked it up from verse Romans eight and four, where it belongs. Now, I'm only telling you this because I want you to be very careful when you're using commentaries and study Bibles and things outside of God's Word <clears throat> when you're trying to understand God's Word. They're very useful. They're, I love commentaries. I love study Bibles. I've got hundreds. I don't think that's a, a, an overstatement. They can be helpful, but they can also mess you up. You've got to be very careful that you rightly divide the word of truth. You look at it. And whenever you see something in a commentary or a study Bible that tells you that there's a mistake somewhere, don't listen to it. Ignore that. Get a pen or something if you want to and go right through that and say wrong. Because, here's the reason. When you start casting doubt on any part of God's word, I don't care if it's one word, if it's a punctuation mark, I don't care what it is. If it's in God's Word and some man tries to make you believe that was a mistake right there in your Bible, the copyists, the translators, the this, the that, you know, they messed up right here. They inserted it. They did this and they did that. Don't believe any of that. Because when you start casting doubt on anything in God's Word, then you'll cast doubt on His entire Word. And like I've always said, if you don't believe the Bible, all the Bible, then you don't believe the Bible at all. So, listen, I've had church members come up to me after a, a service and they'll say, Brother Byron, you said this in your message, but I want you to hear what my study Bible said about it. And they'll read me something out of their study Bible that I know is not part of the text. That whatever man wrote the, the comments there was completely wrong. But that person is relying on that study Bible. They're sitting there in the church service. They hear what the preacher says straight from the Word of God. And they look down at the notes in their study Bible and say, Wait a minute. Well, that ain't right. And so they'll take the Word of what's been written down by man over God's Word. Don't do that. Don't do that. I always tell them, trust in what only the Scripture says. All these other words that's written in there, Comments and commentaries, study Bibles, and all this stuff. You can, you can, they'll be helpful to you, but listen, don't rely upon them 100%. Always rely on God's Word and God's Holy Spirit guiding you and revealing to you His Word. All right, let's get back to our verse. Now, there's also some people that read this verse and this part of it, and they'll say, Now, see there, even if you're saved, if you're walking, after the flesh and not after Christ, then you can be condemned. You can go to hell. You can lose your salvation. That's what the Bible says right there. And Paul, back in Romans chapter 7, when he was talking about all the sins he was committing, and he didn't know how to stop and all that, well, he was lost. Paul was lost. Because it plainly says right there, if you're walking in the flesh and not in the spirit, then you're under condemnation. That's not what it says at all. That's not what it says at all. Remember, we read this last week. Remember what Jesus said to his very own disciples, his trusted, his most trusted men, Peter, James, and John, as he was entering into the garden to pray. 
one of the most crucial times in his whole ministry. And he's there in agony in the garden. And he asks them in Mark 14, 38, he says, Watch ye and pray lest you enter into temptation. And he says this to those believers. He said, The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And in Matthew 26 and 41, it says it like this. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Jesus right here is clearly stating that these believers, his own apostles, his own disciples, those he entrusted in. Remember, he gave his mother's care over to John. And Peter, he gave him the keys of the kingdom of, of heaven on earth that he preached in the, the New Testament church. He gave Peter that. And, and James being uh, the, one of the martyrs for Christ and, and what, a, what a, a, a legacy that he had. These men were all saved men. They were there when he transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were there at the most instrumental times in his whole ministry. And so these are saved men and he's telling them point blank, their flesh, their flesh is weak. Their spirit though is, is willing. Their spirit is, is ready, but not their flesh. And so... Uh, we too are the same. We are saved. If you're saved, you're saved. And your spirit is willing. Your spirit is uh, um, longing. Your spirit is in desiring to do what's right and follow Christ. But your flesh has a problem because you're still having to battle with the old creature. And so we'll find in our heart, mind, soul, and spirit, we're walking after the spirit. But we, in the flesh, our flesh is weak. So when Paul, back in Romans chapter 7, was talking about all that, I do what that which I don't want to do, and that I want to do, I, I don't do, and, and all this, it doesn't mean he was walking in the flesh. It just meant he was having to battle with the flesh. He was walking in the spirit, not in the flesh. Because it's the person that is concerned that they're not doing what they're supposed to do in Christ, that is a marker that they're a believer. They're concerned that they're not doing what they ought to do in Christ. And so that is a, a clear symbol. And so we can look at this and say, that that's true. That's the way that, that I am. Uh, I can certainly say that today. I can stand here and raise my hand and say, there's times that I don't do what I, I want to do. I desire to live the right way for God. And a lot of times it seems like when you're trying your hardest, when you're walking as close to God as, as you think is possible, you're reading your Bible, you're praying, you're, you've got perfect church attendance, all those you know, outward signs that we look at as important. And you think, boy, I am just, I'm really doing good. And it's at that point right there that for some reason the flesh draws you more than any other and will cause you to stumble, cause you to fall, cause you to sin. And what agony that brings you when you find yourself that way. What misery. And so, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. It's not the reason why we are not condemned. It's a description of those who are in Christ. That's all that simply means. And I fully believe what God's Word says, and that is supposed to be in that verse. It's down in verse 4 too. But it's supposed to be in this verse. It is simply a demonstration of, of a true Christian. And so the flesh is not our master or our God. 
We're not walking after the flesh. We're walking after the Spirit. Christ is our Lord, and the Holy Spirit is our guide. And so we need to always remember that, especially in those times when you begin having doubts about your salvation. When you do sin, when you do things that you ought not to do, and how it grieves you, and you grieve the Holy Spirit when you sin against God, you do. Uh, but like the Bible tells us, He is, he is uh, willing to, to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I'm so thankful for that. All we simply have to do, and, and He knows our heart. Listen, God, you can not even speak the words audibly out of your mouth. God can hear your thoughts. Um, he can hear your heart. He knows you. He knows you intimately. And He knows when we're grieved over our sin. He knows when we're repentant over our sin. But, as the Bible tells us, we are to repent. We are to uh, find forgiveness, ask for forgiveness. Some people say, you repent once when you get saved, you don't ever repent again. Untrue. Untrue. All through the Bible, we find that true believers, Christians, will repent your entire life. You'll be repenting. It don't mean you're repenting to be saved. It means that you are grieved in your heart that you've sinned against God. You're seeking His forgiveness to restore your fellowship with Him. And you can have that relationship that you need. Alright, well let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, God, we come to you this morning thanking you for the truths of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you tell us in your word that God is true, but every man a liar. Lord, we rely upon you and your word solely. God, thank you for those men that, that try to help. But Lord, may we rely upon the Holy Spirit for what your word says. God, I'm praying today for those that don't understand this message. Lord, they may be lost. Lord, they're out there and we know that they can't discern the things which are spiritual. But we know that through the power of the Holy Spirit, God, that you can convict their heart. Open their blinded eyes to show them of their wickedness, of their their sinful condition, Lord, and their need to be saved. And Lord, they can come out from that condemnation that all men are under because of the sin of one. But God, that he can be saved and be justified and have salvation because of the righteousness of one, because of the free gift of one, that one being Jesus Christ. Lord, help us today as we try to reach the lost. Help this church, help those listening and Lord, may we be ambassadors for Christ this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.